name is Kristen Smith, and welcome to the Sight Black Women podcast. Today, we have the pleasure of having Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein on our program. Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein is a theoretical physicist and feminist theorist. She is an assistant professor of physics and astronomy and core faculty member in women's and gender studies at the University of New Hampshire. She is also a columnist for New Scientist and the author of The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred, which is forthcoming with bold type books in March 2021. The book chronicles her experiences as a Black woman theoretical physicist, and her work lives at the intersection of particle physics and astrophysics. While she is primarily a theoretical researcher, she maintains strong ties to observational astronomy. Her driving impulse is to understand the origin of space-time and the particles that populate it. Using ideas from both physics and astronomy, she responds to deep questions about how everything got to be the way that it is. She also does research on feminist science studies. Dr. Prescott Weinstein was recognized by Essence Magazine as one of 15 Black women who are paving the way in STEM and breaking barriers. Her personal story and ideas have been featured in the Huffington Post, Gizmodo, Nylon, and the African American Intellectual History Society. Chanda, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. Thank you. You know, it's interesting because I have really wanted to have you on the podcast for a long time. And I must admit that I wanted to have you on the podcast, not only because I think your work is amazing and fabulous and I follow you on Twitter, just like everybody else should. We're going to put your Twitter handle in the description for the podcast, but also because, you know, when I was a little girl, I really wanted to be a scientist and there were, there was just no, there were no, there were no examples in my life to really help me to be able to follow that path. And so I'm a science fiction buff and I read popular science all the time. And so when I discovered that there was a fabulous and amazing black feminist physicist, I was just enthralled. And I just think that your work is, is so important because it sits at the inter- intersection of two fields that rarely have conversations with one another. And so I wanted to start off by just having you tell us a little bit about how you see Black feminism and theoretical physics coming together. Yeah. So I guess I I, want to respond also to what you said about, you know, not having examples. And I think you know, when I when I was a kid, I had the, the same issue that you did of not seeing examples. The examples that I saw, generally speaking, were all white men. There weren't even like um, black men or other men of color who were visible, much less like women of any kind. Um, and and I didn't meet a black woman with a PhD in physics until I was almost done with college. And she had just become a postdoctoral fellow where I was going to school. And she's, she also then went on to become the first black woman professor at an R1 institution that I knew. So that's Nadia Mason, who is now tenured faculty, like award-winning, brilliant faculty member at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And she's also now, she's been mentoring me. And so I, I, I guess I kind of wanted to highlight sort of that line of when you do find someone, um, you 
you get really, really excited about them <laughs> like in, in, in your own way. And I, um, but I do, I do think that part of the challenge that we face as, as black people in general, black women and, and other folks who are um, minoritized genders in some way um, is having to create yourself in a way that people from the majority don't have to do in your mind um, which is that you have to be able to, you have to be the thing that you see because you can't see someone ahead of you all the time. And I think that in some sense, we, we are almost, this is a way that Afrofuturism kind of like functions in the community, <laughs> I, I guess. So I guess like I come at the question of like, where does black feminism come in here? Which is that, um, you know, this kind of like engaging in self-production and, um, Afrofuturist figuring is, I, I think, in some sense, what Patricia Hill Collins was talking about when she wrote about Black feminist thought um, and Black feminist epistemologies, which is, it's almost like a Black feminist ontology to imagine yourself as a scientist, even if all of the sort of signals in the outside world are telling you someone like you doesn't do science. No, definitely. And I think that that's, you know, I'm glad that you went back to, to to what I said about being a little girl, because I think that that is the case for many of us, particularly as black women. Um, a, a lot of times we limit ourselves to the possibilities of what we can see. And indeed, you know, after futurism and the idea of, of, of futurism and black feminism are all built on the idea of imagining new worlds and imagining new possibilities. And in many ways, you know, for many of us, STEM and science and particularly physics is a new possibility. And, and I think that that's, it's really fascinating. And I also think it's important, particularly since this is site, you know, the site black women podcast, and we talk about citation and citation is really about genealogies of thought mm -hmm. and epistemic genealogies. And so when you cite, the black women who mentored you, right? And the one who allowed you to be able to see yourself as who you are today, that's really important and powerful. And I think we have to remember that that's also part of citational work. So Chanda, there is a question that I've always wanted to ask you. Um, and it's a question that comes from my seven-year-old self. I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> and the question is, what does it feel like to be a black woman physicist? So I guess I can answer this from the point of view of like my seven-year-old self, right? Or what I think I would want to hear. So when I was seven, I was super obsessed with doing my times tables. Like I could just sit there and be like, two times two is four, two times three is six. I was completely fascinated by that. So if that sounds fun to you, then like the things that I do for my job could be like a lot of fun for you, I think would be my answer for the seven-year-old. Um, because you really do get to do math. And the cool thing is, is that you get to do math and then the math tells you things about like how space-time evolved and like why galaxies exist and why stars exist and why stars look the way they do and why some of them are big and some of them are small. And then importantly, we have mysteries like the one that just popped up this week. There's a black hole that is the size, um, it's as heavy as 150 stars, like our sun. And we didn't know a black hole that was as massive as 150 suns could exist. 
So now there's a big mystery and it's possible it'll still be a mystery when um, the seven-year-old is in graduate school. So maybe it's a, a problem that you will solve. That is so, I, I love that answer because I saw that in the news about the, the, the double black hole. Is, is that what it's called? Yes. The double black hole. And I was just fascinated. And I think that, you know, I'm hoping that we have some listeners who may have some kids who are interested in physics or interested in being um, scientists when they grow up. And just to, to imagine the fact that, you know, those little things that you like to do, like your times tables can lead to you doing big and fabulous things and thinking about dark matter and black holes and the very, very cool things that you do, you and your colleagues do in your profession. And so I hope that that's inspiring for some folk out there. Yeah, I, I, I really, I encourage everyone to become a theoretical physicist. I have the best job. I'm really excited about your new book. And I know that it's not out yet. And although I'm chomping at the bit to read it, <laughs> I was wondering if, and we're all going to rush out to buy it, of course, in March of 2021. Uh, absolutely. Because we must support you. One of the things I wanted you to do is talk a little bit about your new book. What is it about and how did you come to write it? And what do you feel like it's offering to the conversations that we're all having right now? Yeah. So I guess my, my agent, Jessica Pavin is probably like most responsible for how I came to write it in the sense that I am, I, since about 2006 have been writing online in some way, shape or form about discrimination in physics. And I blogged like all through graduate school. So in, in 2006, I was a PhD student and I had just moved to Canada I'm originally from Los Angeles, but I had just moved to Waterloo, Ontario, which is about 70 miles southwest of Toronto, uh, to go to graduate school and was kind of grappling with, first of all, um, being an immigrant in Canada and my stereotypes about what that would be like for me as an American and trying to like understand racialization. And all of that kind of fed into like um, why I started writing. I think like I was, I was writing partly to try and make sense of things. And also there was a big debate happening in the physics community at the time about um, hegemony and string theory, like whether there was one theory of quantum gravity that was basically taking up too much space. And I was, I was like, I can't believe all these white men are at each other's throats talking about diversity of thought. And none of them have noticed that it's a bunch of white guys at each other's throats talking about diversity of thought. So I wrote a really long comment on, on somebody's blog about it. And he invited me to turn my comment into a post. And that was actually really like my first time. This was Sean Carroll, who's now like a very well-known um, popular science writer. And he's also a theoretical cosmologist. Um, so in some sense, the book, The Disordered Cosmos, which was actually the name of the blog I started around that time where I started writing about these things. And I wrote other things like when I, when I read the book of Negroes, I was so excited about it that I did a reread and I did like a live chapter by chapter summary of like my reaction to the book on, on the disordered cosmos. So that was the blog that I had. The book in some sense is me taking all of the topics that I was blogging about, which was like my experience as a black woman in the field, my experience as a queer person in the field. Um, my love for particle physics, my love for cosmology, like my love for breaking down, um, and finding new ways to explain the science to people 
and also my grief. There's, so the reason that Dreams Deferred is in the subtitle is because I write about the ways in which my dreams have been deferred, the ways in which Black science dreams are deferred, the way that Black dreams are deferred by um, the white supremacist totalitarianism that we live under, the way Indigenous dreams are deferred. So, I, like, you know, the short version of it is that I wanted to write a book that was about physics but I wanted to tell the whole like holistic story of what physics is. So not just like, okay, here's the standard model of particle physics that I've been fascinated with since I was like 10, 11 years old, but also here's why it's challenging for someone like me to get the opportunity to learn about the standard model of physics in a technical sense. And here is the way that rape culture got in my way. And yeah, let's talk about unwaged housework and wages for housework and how that is the subtext of how science actually happens. And then let's talk about white supremacist totalitarianism and colonialism and how science is entwined with that and what we're going to do. And ultimately, what are our what are our black scientist dreams? So my black scientist dreams include black children being able to see a dark night sky. So what are the barriers to that? So that was really I wanted a whole like holistic picture of physics and astronomy from the technical science to the social practice. That is so beautiful. I mean, there's so much there, so much richness in what you just said. When you said that one of your dreams is to have black children see a black night sky, it's just so powerful because a lot of what's caught up in that are the ways that people don't have access to resources, the ways that our urban spaces are, tend to be spaces where Black folk are living. They tend to be um, light polluted, um, meaning that their lights are on all the time, which means you cannot see the black night sky. And if you cannot see the black night sky, you cannot see the stars. Mm. And if you cannot see the stars, how can you imagine yourself as an astronomer one day or a physicist one day? And so all of that is, is, is such a powerful statement. And I'm really struck by your discussion of grief. And I know that there's a lot of grief in your story. And I don't know how much you want to talk about that grief, but you mentioned it just now. And I was wondering if you could just elaborate a bit more on the kinds of grieving that brought you to this point and why they're so important and generative to your story in the book. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the big challenges that probably people experience editing and my, my, uh, my editor, Katie gets like so much credit for helping me through this is that I tend to kind of loop around of like, here's like the circle. Now let's get to the deeper circle. Now let's spiral deeper into it. And I, I think about my, my grief in that way, which is that there's kind of like the outer loop of the things that I think we do talk about and in, 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 on social media and increasingly in the popular press, which is this like feeling ontically epistemically marginalized in like the introductory physics classroom. Um, the scientific community at the, at the academic level really loves to blame K through 12 teachers for how black students do in university classrooms, in university scientific classrooms. So they'll often say, oh, students just didn't get interested because their K through 12 teachers didn't do enough or, you know, it was the poverty or like whatever their narrative about like what black lives are like before they get to college. And they don't 
for example, pay attention to the study that indicates that students from what we call underrepresented minority backgrounds, so Black, Latinx, Native American, Pacific Islander folks, come into college with the same levels of interest in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, as students who are from majority Asian American ethnic groups and um, who are white. So it's not that we're not interested. We get to college and something happens at college that says to us, you can't stay, you can't make it, you don't belong here, all of those things. So I think part of my grief is staying and watching as other people felt pushed out. There's one person in particular I can think of who they were getting like higher grades in their Chinese language class or something. So their physics advisor said, well, like clearly you're better at this like East Asian studies stuff. So why don't you go do that instead of physics? And so you actually actively have people stewarding you out of the field. You're not smart enough. You can't do this. Um, and then we're contending with what you and I were just talking about. You don't have an example of someone who did it anyway. And so you're like, oh, well, maybe I can't do it. Or, you know, and, and this is like not necessarily specific to physics, but academia is so consuming and grotesque in its consumption of your life that um, it's like, well, you will stay, but only if you truly love it enough to suffer for it. And so the grief is also actually the suffering for it, right? And I don't know if that's specific to physics, but maybe the physics version of it is being the only one in the room all of the time. So then the grief is also all of the like things that people say to you that you just absorb because you need them to help you get through the study, the, the problem set. Um, you can't just tell everyone to piss off every time they say something sexist or racist to you because like you still need people to work with. It's still a collaborative major. Um, people rarely do physics problem sets by themselves. There are occasionally people who are like that. So those are just like, you know, some of the outer layers of things. And then like, as I got older, there were the things of discovering that, um, the black men who worked in my field were more likely to mentor black male students and um, to target me for as, as, a, as a sexual object. Um, and so realizing that like the, the black physics community wasn't even necessarily like a home or safe community for me in, in various ways because of the fact, because of my, my, the way I was being gendered publicly or sexed publicly. Um, and to, to really live with like the consequences of, of things that are tied to that. And then to like have men of my generation be like, well, I didn't, you know, it's, it's true that there aren't a lot of us, but I feel very supported. And I'm like, that's great for you (laughs) 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 that you feel supported by dude who like, you know, has gone out of his way to multiple times publicly embarrass me after he got caught screwing up and I didn't let him get away with it or something like that. Um, I think that that's, that that's a, a really, a really huge piece of it, which is that, um, we have work to do on so many levels to, to, to feel safe. And so a lot of the grief is like almost feeling like, I'm going to use this analogy because I'm Jewish, <laughs> like, but like wandering in the desert, looking for home. 
Um, and, and thinking, well, maybe I've found a place where I can like sit down and rest and, oh, actually, no, um, I can't actually sit down and rest there. And then looking around and saying like, look, I'm, I'm the only black woman in at least American history, but as far as we know, global history, who's ever held a faculty position in theoretical cosmology and theoretical particle physics. And wow. I'm that's ridiculous and in a lot of different ways. And, and I'm also extremely conscious, like I'm thin, I'm light skinned. I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish. I have a white parent and I found it tough. Right. So there's also the grief at looking at the structure, which is like, that is how big and burdensome the barriers are that even I felt all of that. I mean, it's so much. And I think that right before we, we started recording today, we were talking about Patricia Hill Collins's uh, theory of the matrix of domination. And you mentioned that as a frame that you find useful when thinking about the ways that um, power works in, in the academic world and in your experiences. And I think that that's a really important frame to think about because there are so many elements that, that factor in to um, holding us back as black women in the academy. And, you know, simple race or gender or sexuality analyses and critiques of what we've been through aren't sufficient. And, and I think that, you know, your story that you just shared really brings our attention back to that. It's not just about the fact that this space, particularly STEM fields, um, particularly the way that STEM is, is the culture of STEM in the academy is anti-Black, but it is also misogynistic. It is also anti-queer. It is also a space where if your identities intersect in certain kinds of ways, you get a unique form, you experience a unique form of discrimination that really does produce a sense of grief and also a sense of alienation and, and all kinds of things. And so I really appreciate you sharing that um, because I think that a lot of people will identify with it, whether or not they're, they're in the STEM fields. And, and, you know, I think it's just really important to remember. It's like it's, a lot of people can relate to the fact that folk are experiencing forms of violence on all sides, even from within our communities in terms of um, violence, gender violence within the black community race and gendered violence from outside of the black community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's just, it's just really powerful and important to remember. And it also helps me to, to think about how you got to black feminism, right? Yes. <laughs> um, and black feminism in particular. And so I want you to talk, if you can, I would really love to hear more about that journey. How did you become a black feminist? Right. So I think this is where, you know, in some sense, I'll say that I'm, I was lucky um, that even though I was very interested in science from a very young age, and often kids who are like that are just like, you know, hyper-focused on learning about science. I was also raised by a Black feminist organizer. So my mom, Margaret Prescott, was um, 
the co-founder, along with Wilmette Brown, of International Black Women for Wages for Housework campaign. And she continues to work within the Wages for Housework campaign as one of the national coordinators of the Global Women's Strike, which was launched in 2000 um, by Salma James, who is my grandmother, and she was the founder of the Wages for Housework campaign. And Salma is is not Black, but actually... um, one of the things that I find really fascinating is now I go back and read, she wrote this pamphlet, Sex, Race, and Class, um, which I think came out in 1974. And in it, there are very clear articulations of something that are along the lines of like matrix of domination, intersectionality, where she's really thinking about race and gender at the same time. And so I was raised in kind of this environment where people were talking about structural gendered racism and, um, you know, uh, racist sexism and what um, Moya Bailey has hopefully termed misogynoir, right? Uh, And so that gave me a framework that I had an easier time when I started witnessing phenomena, right? So when I was a kid, I was like, okay, they're very vocal. There are these like problems. They happen to other people, but I'll probably be fine. I'm a really good test taker. I generally get treated pretty well at school. I'm good. The worst thing that's going to happen to me is that I'm going to stand out a little bit in my physics classes. I was super naive, (laughs) like super, super naive. But I think the one thing that kind of like saved me was that like I did have access to this literature and I had a sense of where to start looking when I needed help situating my experiences in context. And I think the other thing is, is that being my mother's daughter, I was trained to look at how power was working in every room that I walked into and in every situation that I was in. My mom is very focused on articulating what are the power relations that are happening in any kind of situation. And so I think that I had, um, I was lucky that I had kind of a preparation that helped me understand. Um, and I had a vocabulary already. I had a vocabulary around class. I had a vocabulary around race. My mom started talking to me about colorism at a very early stage um, and, and about what my roles and responsibilities were and, and in terms of like a- addressing that. Um, and I think also my family, you know, I have, I, could, I, could, I have like lots of mixed feelings about some of the conversations that we had about this, but I did walk away with like a very clear view also of what my responsibilities were to the community in terms of the things that physicists had done that they shouldn't have been doing, like the Manhattan Project, like nuclear weapons testing in in the Pacific, where um, indigenous Pacific Islanders are still living with the literal nuclear fallout of of weapons testing. So I think I was raised a Black feminist in some sense, but to come into my own as someone who was thinking about it as a theorist, I had to sort of look around and understand in my own context, from my own point of view, what it was that my mom and my grandmother were going on about <laughs> in the first place. Um, and my dad, I should say, because Selma is my my paternal grandmother. She's not my mom's mother. Um, that I And that was kind of like my journey is eventually I was like, okay, I need to start understanding what are the forces at work? And I think that was one thing. And then the other thing that I have to really give credit to the Kanaka Maoli, the native Hawaiian protectors of Mauna Kea, the contested mountain where um, astronomers went to build the 30 meter telescope, because they really forced me to take a very hard look at the way colonialism operated in astronomy. 
and physics eventually. And that deepened my understanding of why I needed Black feminism as an analysis for not just understanding my personal experiences, but for understanding how power worked in science and how science related to political power in our larger society. I think that that I, you know, I, I love your, the story of your personal history and I love it because it reminds me. And I think it will remind many of the folk who are listening of the fact of the, of the work of mothering Mm. in black feminist formation and the fact that our children in are either our biological children or as Patricia Hill Collins would say, either our, our blood children or our, our other children, our community children um, are constantly absorbing the politics and the lessons that we're giving them. And so in the lessons that your mother passed on to you in the lessons that your grandmother passed on. And I also think that's a be- beautiful story of kind of allyship, right? What does it look like for a white woman? to to actually speak up and speak out on the intersectional forms of violence that Black women experience and why it's important for us to pay attention to that. All of that shaped who you are, right? And that in turn has shaped your, your, your identity as a physicist and your interventions as a physicist, which have been myriad. I think that, you know, we, we know that physics is a white male space. We know that. Right. If you if you don't know that, everybody, you should just watch any given (laughs) physics documentary on Netflix and you will soon find out that it's a white male space. Right. And we know that. But I think that to to really understand what it means to be a black queer feminist scholar in physics and to be and to be outspoken about that and to actively try to dismantle the, the, the multiple forms of white supremacist, heterosexist patriarchy that you encounter and neoliberalism and imperialism, because you were just talking about indigenous land reclamation and, and colonial, colonialism. So all of these things are fit, fitting into that. You know, that is a constant struggle that I think that even though we have an idea of the kinds of things that you go through, it it is much more expansive than most of us can imagine. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I've been impressed with are the kinds of projects that you do within physics in order to create spaces for people of color and for women, right? And so I wanted you to talk a little bit about those kinds of projects. What are the kind of projects that you're excited about that are creating new spaces, not only in STEM, but specifically in physics? Yeah. So I guess uh, I want to share a quote from Selma's Sex, Race, and Class only because I think it's it sort of frames like how I think about these things. So in the opening paragraph of, of this pamphlet, she says, yet if sex and race are pulled away from class, virtually all that remains is the truncated provincial sectarian politics of the white male metropolitan left. Um. So I love it. Yeah, it's like amazing. And also whenever people are like, wow, Chanda is like, she's very, she's very direct and she'll come down really hard. I'm like, you just don't know my grandmother. (laughs) Like, I, I aspire to write sentences that are both that clear eyed and cutting in, in some sense. Like I'm not, I'm not there yet. Um, 
and and I think in relation, like the th- when I think about what am I excited about doing in science, like the things that I'm excited about. Um, last year, Keolu Fox, who is a Kanaka Maoli and Native Hawaiian geneticist, who is now a professor of global health at, at UC San Diego, he and I wrote co-wrote a piece for the nation about this myth that the fight about the 30 meter telescope was science versus religion. And I actually, I just, I spoke to Keolu a couple of days ago. And I think like one of the things that I'm excited about is these collaborations where there are scientists, he and I are both starting as junior faculty. Like, I think we actually started the tenure track the same year. And so we are kind of like a generation that is, that we are in, in conversation with each other about like, yes, we really, in some sense, like, like little giddy children, <laughs> like enjoy science, but we also have these political commitments. And so I'm excited to build relationships with people who are interested in, in these political and in, in, in rethinking what are our political commitments and how does that shape science? And therefore, how dramatically and in what dramatic ways does science as a practice, as a community, as an establishment, all of these different definitions that science has need to change. And similarly, um, you know, Jedida Eisler, who is the other black woman um, astrophysics, astrophysics professor here in New Hampshire, bizarrely, New Hampshire's got two of us. There are very few states that can claim that. That's um, amazing. <laughs> Jedida is, is the founder of Vanguard STEM, which has been like this amazing media organization and, and mentoring organization um, that focuses on women and gender minorities of color in STEM, creating spaces for them, creating mentoring. And one of the, I, I love being in dialogue with Jedida. I think she and I have had very different experiences and trajectories just because of like where we started and how we got to where we are now. So she's a professor at Dartmouth College. And we're even having different experiences because, you know, Dartmouth and University of New Hampshire are different beasts in different ways. Um, but we are often doing a lot of the same reading And I think that's become increasingly true. And so it's fun that like sometimes we're texting about like something relating to black women, blah, blah, blah. And then the next thing we're talking about, like, well, could we collaborate on this project relating to like dark matter and black holes? Because she's a black hole expert and I'm a dark matter expert. So again, rethinking how does science happen? What do our scientific collaborations look like? I am super excited about that. And I think like the third person that I really like want to name, um, well, I guess there are like two more, but I guess like two of the people is Brian Nord, who is one of the other black theoretical cosmologists. Um, although I don't know, maybe Brian would say he's an observational cosmologist, but I'm converting him. He's at (laughs) and the university of Chicago. And Brian and I spent a lot of time talking about like, how are we going to deal with these issues of misogynoir in our community? Um, and also we have, you know, we co-organized the strike for black lives with, with the rest of particles for justice earlier this summer. And so Brian and I were collaborating on a project with, um, with my, my new postdoc, Nathan Musoki and Brian has been like an amazing colleague and ally and like kin in some sense. And I think similarly, Sarah Tuttle, who's a white woman, a professor at the university of Washington in the astronomy department, um, has, has been a firm backer of my, like, um, my anti-colonial work, 
co-signed a grant when I needed someone who could receive a grant to be on it and um, generally shows up when people try and mess with me. <laughs> so, I mean, would hide me in her attic if necessary, you know, I love it. and, and so I, I'm really excited about being part of a generation of scientists. That's just like, no, <laughs> we're not doing it the way you guys did it. Cause the way you did it was fucked up. Sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but yeah, it was you can up. totally say that. <laughs> this is, we, we are, we are a relaxed and be yourself podcast. So we want you to be yourself. I think that that, and I think it's apropos. Absolutely. It's, it's fascinating Chanda, because I think that, you know, so one of the themes that I hear in, in what you're saying um, is this theme of allyship and particularly in spaces that are predominantly white you know, we have a lot of listeners from around the world and many of our listeners, uh, most of our listeners probably, um, are not black, right? They are white folk who are trying to learn how do I do this and how do I rectify some of the things that white supremacy, the havoc that white supremacy has, has, has caused. And just in your conversation about your colleagues, you just gave us some wonderful examples of how people can show up and show up in real responsible ways that support Black women's work, but at the same time, don't reify white supremacy by trying to take up space from Black women, right? Yes, yes. So I think, you know, I've been thinking really like hard about this question of what do I want people to know if they are serious about doing this work, if they are serious about building this other world that we desperately need because our ecosystem, and that includes, you know, the people of the global South who are not the primary contributors to like the global warming situation, which like, you know, I, I feel like I just have to say global warming is a technological advancement. So when people talk about technology as progress, I just want them to remember that part of our quote progress unquote is global warming, which is now this massive ecological catastrophe. So we need just a completely like different world. And I, when I think about like, what do I want people to be doing to be in conversation about this? I think it does require doing a lot of like deep learning. Um, and so like when I think about like, for example, Sarah Tuttle or Lucian Walkowitz is um, a, a white person who is at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago and um, they're also someone that I'm in conversation a lot. They they and I are like always texting each other about like um like what is the the latest anarchist book that we're excited about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the, sorry, I had to laugh at that one. That's amazing. The thing that I point to is that all of us are reading constantly and trying to deepen our understanding of um what are the theoretical frames that help us rethink what we're doing that point in new directions that allow us to create new structures. So Lucianne and I have been particularly interested in mutual aid and transformative justice, for example. And so I think it's easy for people to get bogged down in like, you know, whatever your favorite, like how to be an anti-racist text is. And that's not to say like some, like maybe some of those books are, I'll be honest and say, I actually don't read those books a lot because I feel like that's for me where I am in my theory work and thinking that's not what I need. Right. Um, but I want people to go deeper than that. Like, 
sure, read whatever that introductory book is. But also, yes, at some point you should read Patricia Hill Collins. Yes, it's hard. Work through it. Take take like it might take you three years. That's fine. But keep working at it. The work, the working at understanding what these folks are saying is is part of what transforms you and helps you do the work. Um, and that means like read Franz Fanon. I don't agree with Franz Fanon about everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you got to read Franz Fanon. Um, it's valuable to know who Claudia Jones is, right? Uh, read CLR James. I mean, and I say this like, you know, he's my, he's my grandfather. Also not good on gender, <laughs> like not good on gender at all. So part of it is you're also reading these people. They're saying useful and interesting things. And then you're also reading them and being like, okay, what's missing from this conversation? So CLR James, not the dude you go to for a good like racing class and gender analysis. Um, actually, Selma James is useful for that. Uh, right. right? His, his, right. his, his widow. Uh, um, and I, I, so I guess like what I would say is like in thinking about like how do we how do we do this work? I think all of us have to continuously be in what I guess like um, I've heard Buddhists say is beginner's mind. Um, that like I'm constantly picking up things and being like, damn, I didn't know anything. <laughs> like that's I, I I feel that way all the time. Like I'm sure like I ha- I just got Martha Jones's new book Vanguard. Um, about black women and and voting rights. And I'm sure I'm going to read that and be like, well, shit, I didn't know American history at all. (laughs) (laughs) I think all of us will get it and read that and (laughs) and think the same thing because she's brilliant and she always brings knowledge that we didn't know about. Um, But that, you know, it's, I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you um, brought up both Fanon and CLR James um, primarily because one, Obviously, you know, con- considering the connections between your family and CLR James, you know, I'm hesitant to critique. But since since you brought up the critique, I know, right? Because, you know, it's family, right? So you don't really want to say anything. But I think that that's something that's really important that you 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 point to. We have the canon in Black studies. And I think that often um, when folk from fields that are not the humanities and not necessarily the social science, fields that don't typically engage in Black studies at the same rate, and I would put STEM and physics in that, right? Um, Then often a lot of our STEM folk, a lot of our STEM family don't get a chance to do a lot of reading um, outside of the field. And, And I think that it's important to recognize the ways that we can continue to read and expand, but also critique and engage and recognize the 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 blind spots that people have like Fanon and James with or CLR James as opposed to your grandmother Selma James CLR James their blind spots in gender and the gender analysis right and how we can then read back into the black feminism and the genealogy of black feminist thought um, and folk who are thinking critically from a black feminist perspective, and I would put your grandmother in that, in that category, right. Um, who are bringing a different 
angle on things. And so, you know, when we're, when we're talking about at the very beginning of our conversation, you talked about your, your identity as a, as a physicist and the relationships that, that has the wages for housework. And I was thinking about how we're related to the academy and how our identity as academic labor workers um, comes together and how that then gets affected by gender and race. And I know I've learned so much just from the ways that your perspective on Black studies in conversation with your perspective on feminism and Black feminism and your work in physics gives me new perspective on the things that I have read before. And so I just want to kind of say that because I think that part of what is really um, energetic about this conversation is a couple of things. One, if you're not in traditional black studies fields that are in the humanities and social sciences, you can still read this stuff and understand it and engage in a critical conversation around it. Mm. And two, there's a lot to learn from those of you that are doing STEM who have a different way of seeing the world, who then read that and then reflect it back in new ways. And I think about you and your, your colleagues at Ida and your conversations around reading, et cetera. And I just get really excited about that because for us, that's what Psych Black Women is all about. It's about the constant search of learning, right? Buddha's beginner's mind. I think that if, if we all came to this with a beginner's mind, we would get so much out of it. And I just really appreciated that. I just wanted to say that I appreciated that perspective so much. Yeah, I guess like the, listening. So first of all, I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I, I think that one of the things that I, I, I experienced difficulty actually, because like, you know, I was self-taught. I've never taken a class in women's and gender studies well, I took a class on Jane Austen's England my, my first year of college. So maybe that counted as, as, as a women's studies class of some kind. Um, I've never taken, not since high school, a class in like African-American studies of any kind. And so I was just kind of like picking up books and reading them and not understanding necessarily like the disciplinary boundaries that existed and sort of the politics of Black studies and women's and gender studies and the way that Black feminist thought gets kind of distributed for reasons that have to do with the politics of where people felt welcome, for example. Like um, I've heard from black women, black feminist scholars, that they didn't feel like they had a home in black studies departments. And that's how they ended up in women's and gender studies departments, right? And and that's like not necessarily universal. Um, but one of the things that I think helped me cope with that, I really want to name um, like Christina Sharp, um, her in the wake was like a, a, a really like a life changing book for me. Because first of it's all, a beautiful book. I, I I mean it's just like beautifully written. First of all, it's intimidatingly beautifully written because you're just like, how am I ever going to like? <laughs> I just can't write because like I can't write like this. Um, but I read it and I was like, this is a science this is a science technology and society studies book because, because it is in some sense, literally about like the engineering of the boat to make it more efficient, to carry my ancestors into slavery. Um, and, and, th and that's sort of like the, the, the centerpiece of, and, and the central image of the narrative of the wake, um, is the wake of the slave ship. Right. And it was, 
through in the wake that I came to Catherine McKittrick's mathematics, um, um, black life. And then I was like, oh, so there is this whole other way of thinking about what does it mean to engage with numbers? Um, and what is the history of statistics as a field, which is, you know, entangled with accounting. And we now know of like the slave ship Zong, which like, you know, I, I had Zong, um, the, the poem, but had not really kind of drawn those connections until I read McKittrick. And then also read, um, started reading Imani Perry's Vexy thing and like consumed, like I couldn't put the book down. And I guess like what I want to say is like reading those scholars and then actually having the opportunity to talk with all of them. I've been really lucky that the three of them have all been supportive of me and been willing to answer my stupid questions and, um, and just talk. I'm sure your questions aren't stupid, by the way. <laughs> but, but to really actually encourage me to not worry so much about the disciplinary boundaries and to just keep doing the work that I was doing. Um, and, and so I really want to name kind of like the three of them as people who defied the boundaries that I felt like I was starting to see manifested to actually say, no, you have to keep doing this because this is a disciplinary boundary that doesn't serve you and it doesn't serve us and it doesn't serve what you're trying to do. Absolutely. And I think about Christina Sharp's um, discussion of the the water and the half-life in the water and and the way that she's, she's kind of entering into the field of marine biology, right? Um, and 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 thinking about and thinking about science in new ways in order to theorize our conditions in the Americas. And the same is true for McKittrick. Um, and you also cited Imani Perry. I mean, I think that there's there are ways that we on this side, on the social and humanistic side of black studies, have always been promiscuous in our reading. But I think that in a lot of ways, we haven't necessarily been able to create spaces for folk from outside of the, the, the social and humanistic sides of Black studies to be per- promiscuous with us, right? Mm. And I think that that's something that I hear from you that I think is powerful because I've met a lot of young scholars from around the country who are in STEM fields who really latch on to cite Black women as a movement and often tell me, and actually it's interesting because the series of podcasts that we're doing for this month is on Black women in science, right? Um, And part of the reason that we came to this is because there's so many Black women in STEM who've had these experiences, but feel like even when it comes to celebrating Black women's scholarship, they're not seen because most of the work that we talk about is not in their field. And so thinking creatively about what they bring to discussions of Black feminism and Black women's experiences from where they stand in STEM is also extremely important. And I think that it's pioneering in that way. And, 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 you know, and you talking about reading with your friends and then from there collaborating in your fields is, is part of the ways that we can think about the directionality of thought and how all of us can be influencing one another and creating new communities and new futurities and imaginaries by engaging with each other's work. I think it's really, really beautiful. So Chanda, I hear that you're working on a Sight Black Women project. 
I'm so excited about this. Can you tell us a little bit more about your site, Black Women Project? Yeah. So, you know, I've been watching Site Black Women for quite a while and Site Assista and thinking a lot about the difficulties that we face in physics of actually enacting a practice of citing Black women, which is that I think, like, you know, often the excuse is like, well, I don't know any Black women or I don't know Black women's work or whatever. And there are some fields where like that's like it's easy to call bullshit on that. Right. Because, um, you know, it's like it's black studies or something like that. And there are black women everywhere writing all about it. Absolutely. Right. And so in physics, I think that the excuse is a little more sensible in the sense that there have been actually very few black women who have earned PhDs in physics. I'm one of under 100 black women who has earned a PhD from a department of physics. I am, and, and for context, I should say like there, there are 2000 PhDs in physics granted every year in the United States. If you add in Canada, which is where I got my PhD, then like the number is even higher, right? Um, so there, there actually aren't necessarily like a ton of papers by black women. Often people don't know where to find what black women have published on. Jamie Valentine, Dr. Jamie Valentine, who is one of the Black women PhDs in physics, runs African-American Women in Physics, which maintains a list of Black women who have earned PhDs in physics and related fields like astronomy and material science and geophysics and that sort of thing. So you can go there and like look at the list and kind of like see what fields are people in. But what I am sort of inspired by Jamie's work as kind of our community historian, um, and I should say Jamie Valentine Miller, I've known her for so long that I forget the Miller sometimes. I am um, that I I was so fascinated by her work as as our community historian that I wanted to build on it, and so I would actually like to build a bibliography of papers by Black women with PhDs in physics. That is so amazing, and I'm you know I I think that it's that kind of work that really helps to expand the project that, you know, site black women does that site assisted does that site her, you know, uh, citing people of color. There's all these great projects out there that are doing this work. And what we really need is to have people sit down and do the bibliographies and to, to, to chart it. And so I'm super excited about that. Do you have an, an idea of what kind of, um, how you're going to publish it? Are you going to put it online? Are you going to make some sort of uh, report? How do you how do you envision sharing with it, sharing it with people? I definitely want it to be something that's very easy to access, and so definitely at the end of the day, online will be a major feature of it. I do think that it would be nice to, I mean, and this is like really forward looking because this is a difficult project, especially since like the the first. Black women to earn PhDs in physics were in the 1970s. And so like some of the repositories where I might be looking um, are not, are not going to contain all of their papers or sometimes people were, were doing things in industry. And so for example, Willie Hobbs Moore, who was the first black woman to earn a PhD in physics in 1972 at the university of Michigan spent most of her career working for Ford motors. And so actually a lot of the things that she wrote were like Ford documents. So figuring out like how to include those things, what are the things that make sense to include and what are the things that maybe don't make sense to include and that kind of thing. So this is going to be like a long-term project. I'm, But I think ultimately I'll have to write about like, you know, the journey, because I'm assuming 
I've, I've only done, I've basically gone through Willie Hobbs Moore's papers and Shirley Ann Jackson, who was the first black woman to earn a PhD in theoretical particle physics. Um, and the second black woman to earn a PhD in physics. Um, and she was the first from MIT. She's now the president of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, if that name sounds familiar to anyone. Um, she, and I've only gone through like a couple of people, but there, there are difficulties in finding the papers, but also like it's a whole journey of just like going through, figuring out which papers. Um, I also started to do Anna J. Koble, um and Arlene McClin, who Arlene McClin was the, the, the third person from a physics department um, and figuring out like, or maybe it's Macklin, like figuring out which papers are hers, which papers are somebody else with the initial A and that last name and that kind of thing. Um, so I think eventually I'll have to write about like actually like the, the process of doing that work, um, where I had to go how many hours it involved because like part of, you know, understanding the doing black women's studies is actually acknowledging the challenge associated with doing black women's studies, including Absolutely. the fact that like, I would actually love for Kristen, you and I should talk about this, finding resources to support me in doing it. Like even yeah. like, you know, I'm, I've started to think about like, where can I apply for grants so I can get support doing this? Because probably it will take a really long time if I just do it by myself. So, you know, these are all things that I'm thinking about right now. So I would say like I'm in, I did the testing of like, what's it like to try and do this with a few, of, with a few people. And now I, I, I really want to do like the whole list and the list is growing. Thankfully, the number of black no. women with PhDs grows every year. And I think that's amazing. Um, you know, one thing that I forgot to mention in our conversation so far is the fact that if I'm not mistaken, you're the 63rd black woman to get a PhD in physics. Is that correct? Yeah. So I try not to be like super like clingy with the numbers because occasionally they change. Like we find out that there was someone like the year before that we didn't know about. Um, and also it depends on like whether you're counting when I defended my dissertation or, or when my degree was actually awarded. Mm-hmm. Um, and also whether you're counting on this list, it includes people from departments of astronomy and material science. If we're just talking about departments of physics or physics and astronomy, I was in the 50s. If mm. you're being a little more expansive, then we get up into the 60s. Um, but I think like the primary point, I try not to get too hung up on what number I was. Um, other than like the utter fuckery that like in a country where people earn, where there are 2000 PhDs in physics every year, right. That there have been under a hundred that have gone to black women in all of us history. Absolutely. I think to me, I definitely get what you mean about the numbers. And I also think that, you know, you and I understand this, but just to share with everyone who's listening is, you know, we have to move away from this idea of um, hierarchies of, 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 of time, right? So no, she was the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth. It's not really about that. It's, it's, it's really about the fact that thinking about the the low, very, very low numbers, and as you mentioned, the utter fuckery of it, because I think that's the only word that we could use for it, that there just have been so few, considering how many physicists there are. And I think that it would be helpful, you know, what year, do you, do you know off the top of your head what year the first Black woman physicist got her PhD? 
So the first PhD was Willie Hobbs Moore in 1972, which was almost exactly 100 years after the first Black man PhD, which was Edward Boucher, I think 1871 at Yale University. And that in and of itself speaks volumes Mm -hmm. to why we even bring up the numbers. It's not about the numbers, everyone. That's not really the issue. What it's about is the way that we are underrepresented and, and the way, like we've been talking, the way that the way that black women have not had access to this space. And I think that your project um, of, of really thinking about a bibliography and chronicling these black women's um, contributions, no matter what they look like, whether they be reports for Ford or something else is, is extremely important. And I would say, you know, um, I don't know if there's a place that people can contact you or a way that people can reach out to you if they have information that they think might be relevant to you for this project. Because one of the things that we found at Site Black Women is that a lot of times um, our space on social media has become a place where people exchange information um, and can give information to folk who are doing this kind of work. And so if there's a way that people can reach out to you to share Oh, you know, something like my grandmother got wrote something in physics in whatever year or something like that. Is there a way for people to reach out to you on that? Yeah, so definitely the best way to reach me is there is a form on my website, which requires jumping through some hoops because unfortunately I need to make it hard for people to send me hate mail, but I promise <laughs> it's not personal. I mean, that like, yes, if there are, and I know that Jamie in particular, like if people go to the African-American women in physics website, they'll see that she has started to include black women who earned master's degrees in physics. I'm um, in the early years on the list. I'm um, so Catherine, I am not Catherine, Carolyn Beatrice Parker was the first black woman to earn a, a, a graduate degree in physics. I am from MIT in 1951. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite interested by Carolyn Beatrice Parker because she worked on the Dayton project, which was part of the larger Manhattan project, nuclear weapons effort. And it seems that she died from a cancer related to her work on the Dayton project. And her family has said over the years that they believed that she was on her way to getting a PhD at MIT and that the illness is what prevented her from completing it. So actually my other like kind of like site black women project is actually digging more deeply into the history of Carolyn Beatrice Parker um, and understanding her as an intellectual ancestor that troubles me in some sense. One, because of how she died, but also because of how many people died on the other end of that project that they were all working on. That is such an important history. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. And also, we're, you know, we'll definitely have to be in touch and so that we can support you in that project in whatever way we can. And again, we're going to link um, Dr. Prescott Weinstein's website to the podcast description. And so if you have information that you think that she could use, please do reach out to her via her website. Well, I know we're coming towards the end of our time. And so I I wanted to ask a couple of more questions if I can, because I think yeah. that everybody's going to want to hear them. Um, you you mentioned three books or two, one, two, three, 
one, two, three. I'm like, how many? Um, <laughs> you mentioned a few books that that you've been reading, but I wanted to know, are there any other things that are making up your bibliography right now that you want to recommend to our listeners? Oh, no. This means that I have to like remember names really carefully, which I'm actually... <laughs> you can just try. I'm actually... We'll, we'll hyperlink them. So I have to say like, I'm the one book that I keep coming back to is Vaughn Raspberry's Race and the Totalitarian Century. I would say that that was also like a really transformative text for me. It just came out a couple of years ago. Um, and and I, Vaughn has also been someone who's been really generous with me in terms of like indulging my like silly, like, uh, can I draw this connection and, and that sort of thing. But really that book helped me understand white supremacy as a totalitarian system. And I think that that was really important for me. And for folks who end up reading The Disordered Cosmos, you will see the, the, the imprint of that line of thought throughout the text. Um, so I, I, I wanted to highlight that book because actually when I started watching the new series Lovecraft Country, which I highly recommend, I would, I would say Lovecraft Country at this, at this point, the show is a text I am now engaging with. Um, wow, that's great. Is Vaughn's book, Race in the Totalitarian Century, was immediately the book that came to mind because I was like, this show is about white supremacy as a monster, as a total totalitarian monster. And in some sense, um, so, so Vaughn's book is really about like how black thinkers, including black artists and black political thinkers, um, were, were thinking about white supremacy in the early 20th century, in the first half of the 20th century. And so I really think Lovecraft Country is now kind of, and this is how we're doing it now. So also in relation to that, Catherine McKittrick has this new book coming out, Dear Science and Other Stories. And I, I had the privilege to have an advanced copy of it um, because I'll be interviewing her for public books about it. And that was, that was one of the other books that I immediately pulled out when, when I saw the first episode of Lovecraft Country. Um, because in it, she's really thinking through Black studies as, um, as an epistemology and um, Black studies as scientific thought and the relationship between Black studies and scientific thought, but in very different ways than I have been doing that work. Um, I'm going to have to read the book like about five more times, I think. <laughs> At least. Um, but I, I, I really like I want people to be really, really hype about Dear Science and other stories because it it is um, really, really just like phenomenal. And um, then I guess like I, I want to point people to um, Britt Bennett's work, The Vanishing Half. So that's the novel that I'm reading right now, um, which it's. It's not an easy read, but I appreciate the level of detail and care that um, she has taken in the story that is about um, that is about color, that is about black identity, that is about like what is passing due to us psychologically, and also what does it do to our community and what does it do to our family relations, um, and I think that we need nuanced discussions about skin color that aren't just like, um, you're either on the side or you're on that side, but are really like, let's take a holistic view of what is white supremacy doing 
that we become divided in these ways and that we are making these fucked up choices. Um, so that's, that's, those are, those are books that like immediately come to mind. Um, yeah, those are books that immediately come to mind. <laughs> I appreciate all of those. And I, I I would say I'm extremely excited about Catherine McKittrick's new book because I love her work. And so I cannot wait to read that. And I cannot wait to hear your interview of her um, or to, to either hear it or read it. I don't know what kind of uh, venue it is, but I can't wait to see it. And I'm also excited about these other books that you are recommending and impressed that with all that you have to do, you're still finding time to also read fiction which means that you are Literally. a true renaissance woman. Really, really, I mean, I, I really, I had to make that commitment to myself because like basically when I stop reading fiction, eventually it gets to the point where I just like go and I stand in front of my spouse and I start crying because like my brain feels like it's trapped in a vice. Um, I need, I need fiction. And I think like actually part of like my care for myself has been like, you just have to make room for it. And I don't care. Like even, even if you know, there are, maybe you have to fall behind in real housewives of Atlanta or something like that, but you need, <laughs> even though like, you know, I started watching that show so that I could like be in conversation with people about what was happening on the show. And then of course I became like completely glued to it for like my own reason. Really right? exactly. yeah, yeah. But I, I really like, um, I went for a while where I didn't have my books with me physically for, for various reasons. And it actually became like a health issue for me um, that I needed to have books around me. And I, I think in this particular moment, I need to be reading Black women um, and Black uh, genderqueer folks um, so I'm also, I guess the other book I'll, that I'll mention is Marquise Bay's Anarcho-Blackness, which was actually like the last book that Lucienne and I were excitedly texting each other about. Yes, that's lovely. Um, which I haven't, like, I'm only a couple pages in, but all of it, I was like, yes, 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 yes. So um, I just, I need it and I have to make room for it because I need it. And I think in this political moment, we're in this, this is, this is not going to happen. This is not going to all this shit that's happening right now will not end soon. It will certainly not end in November. I don't think anybody has any illusions about that. I don't think anybody black has any illusions about that. Um, but we need to be in this for the long haul. And that means that we do need to think about what are the things that help us keep going. That, I mean, first of all, that was such a beautiful statement that I think I just want us to end the conversation there because I think that there is something forward looking about what you just said. And I just appreciate everything that you've brought to this conversation and everything that you shared with us today. Is there anything else that you want us to share that we haven't been able to talk about? Yeah. I guess like the one thing that I want to add is I talked about the grief and I talked about you know, the pain and the difficulties I face. And I just really want to say that, like, I still really, the standard model of particle physics is so cool. It's just so cool. And the thing is, is it's tough to be a black woman of any kind, anywhere. There are ways in which it's more difficult for some of us than others, right? It is tough to be a black woman anywhere. If you have the opportunity to do something that you really like and you really care about, Hold on to that. Um, like as, as Langston Hughes, hold fast to dreams. That is beautiful. 
We've been talking with Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. And I just want to say, Chanda, thank you so much for your time and your energy. I have really enjoyed getting to know you. And I just can't wait for all of the things that you're going to bring us in the world. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sight Black Women. Follow us at Sight Black Women on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our new website, www.sightblackwomencollective.org. And remember, it's simple. Sight Black Women. We theorize, we produce, we revolutionize the world. 